Welcome back to Poetry Centered, where we invite a contemporary poet to curate and introduce recorded poetry readings from VOCA, the University of Arizona Poetry Center's online audiovisual archive. In each episode, you'll hear three poems from the archive plus a poem from the host. I'm Julie Swerstad Johnson, here to welcome you to the show. We'll hear today from poet Adrian Matika, author of four previous collections of poetry who had two brand new books come out over the summer. Somebody Else Sold the World, his newest collection of poetry, and Standing on the Verge and Maggot Brain, which pairs visual art and poetry inspired by Funkadelic. He's the Ruth Lilly Professor of Poetry at Indiana University, Bloomington. In this episode, Adrian reflects on the reality of cruelty as it runs through American institutions, history, private lives, and the public sphere. He traces these ideas through recordings by I, Lucille Clifton, and Al Young. Adrian, thank you for being with us today. Peace, everybody. This is Adrian Matika, and I'm recording from the Bates Hendricks neighborhood of Indianapolis, Indiana. It's wild that the last year of isolation and sheltering in place made me think about my friends and my neighbors differently than I had before. Having to stay separate from them, I mean, um, for their good as well as mine, has made me think about compassion and about cruelty differently. I'm thinking about all of this, too, um, framed by the general absence of citizenship and empathy in a lot of Americans. I'm thinking about the day-to-day microaggressions and usual racisms and how differently they play now while everyone has been living separately for a while. I mean, one of the only good things about uh, isolation was I had a little more space to think about the American institutions. Um, They're often cruel, almost always. But for anyone who's ever relied on assistance from the state, it's a bureaucratic kind of spitefulness. I mean, it's still awful. It's still humiliating, but... It can sometimes be offset by the empathy of the people who work inside of it. Poets have been speaking about this kind of thing forever, the possible brutalities and um, the people who resist those brutalities. So I wanted to share a few poems that meditate on our inherent cruelty by some of my favorite poets. The first poem I want to share is called Cruelty by I, and it was recorded September 13th, 1972. I is a Japanese word for love, which is wonderful on a sonic and metaphoric level, but especially beautiful since the poet herself often talked about the general sentimentality of love while she was rejecting it and the romantic traditions it inspires. She was much more interested in the other side of things, those possibilities and bleaknesses of the human condition. This particular poem is a testament to that, as is the book it comes from, which is also called Cruelty. And everybody should read it, uh, read it if they get the chance. It's a brilliant and also very harrowing experience. I was more interested in those places where our capacities for violence intersect with our hunger and our need. She was one of the first poets I read to, um, and it was before I understood what persona was or what kind of opportunities persona as a mode gives us for exploration outside of ourselves. I think the word unflinching gets overused in blurbs and introductions, but a poet has to be flinch resistant to write a poem that includes lines like, the thing I want most is hard running toward my own teeth and it bites back. What sounds? I mean, what clarity of rough intent? Here is I reading her poem, Cruelty. Cruelty. 
I'm very obsessed with the cruelty of human beings to others and to animals and to themselves. And lots of my poems are about that. And especially the perversion of sex. I never write love poems unless they're about the perversion of love. I can't, because, you know, it would be too sentimental if you just wrote about love. Cruelty. The hoof marks on the dead wildcat gleam in the dark. You are naked as you drag it up on the porch. That won't work either. Drinking ice water hasn't, or having the bed spring snap fingers to help us keep rhythm. Because I've never once felt anything that might get close. Can't you see? The thing I want most is hard, running toward my own teeth, and it bites back. Almost anybody who's heard me talk about poetry has probably heard me talk about my love for Lucille Clifton's work, and particularly the second poem I want to share with you all, which doesn't have a title. It's just called Cruelty, Don't Talk to Me About Cruelty. This version was recorded October 12, 1983. Like so many of Ms. Clifton's poems, cruelty is an elegant balance of wisdom and imagery. She mentions it herself in the introduction to the poem, and I'd like to repeat what she said. She said that this poem is aware of the complications and dangers each person is capable of. I think that that speaks to her entire body of work, really. She's deeply um, invested in the, the tensions, like the moral and uh, ethical and intellectual tensions we all carry. I love her use of the word capable in the poem because it comes from the Latin capere, which means take or hold. In the poem, Clifton makes legible just how tenuous our moral hold on goodness is. She's one of the rarest of poets, the kind who works, whose work is poetic in perspective as well as language. And in my pantheon of best poetry endings ever, now I watch myself whenever I enter a room. I never know what I might do is right there with the end of Robert Hayden's Those Winter Sundays and Yusef Komanyaka's Thanks. That's how you end a poem. That's how you lock the door on any excuse we might have for our actions and eventual cries for forgiveness. Here's Lucille Clifton reading her poem, Cruelty, Don't Talk to Me About Cruelty. This is the next to the last one. And what this is about is I never... Well, well, I'm, I'm very hard to surprise. That's the first thing. And I never think too, I never think about the awfulness that happens with humans as over there. Because that allows you to keep it over there. And I always know that there is in me the possibility to be Hitler and the possibility to be something else, Mother Teresa. This is a poem, something, I think it's about that. Cruelty. Don't talk to me about cruelty or what we are capable of. When I wanted the roaches dead, I wanted them dead, and I killed them. I took a broom to their country, and I smashed and sliced without warning, without stopping, and I smiled all the time I was doing it. It was a Lebanon of roaches. Bodies... Parts of bodies red all over the ground. I didn't ask their names. They had no names worth knowing. 
Now, I watch myself whenever I enter a room. I never know what I might do. The last poem I want to share doesn't include cruelty in its moniker, even though the poem is a manifestation of the kinds of cruelty both I and Lucille Clifton talked about in their poems. It's called The Slave Ship Desire by Al Young, and it was recorded in 1997. Before I say a little bit about the poem, I want to talk about the poet. Al Young died on April 17, 2021, at the age of 81. I was fortunate to study with him at Kabe Kanem back in 2002 and 2003. Among the many things I learned from him is how history is always bigger than us, no matter what we think we might be doing. He gave me some advice once about revising the beginning of a poem, and I'd like to share it with you. He said, and this is paraphrased, but it's almost a direct quote. He said, you're born while everything's already happening, so why not start the poem there? I love that advice, and I'm so grateful for everything I learned from Al Young. His poems are preoccupied with history and music and all the different variations possible in language. He was a living jazz solo, really, as anyone who met him can attest to, um, as he was constantly improvising lineation and imagery and playing with sounds. I'm so glad I get to share the slave ship desire with you because it's an example of so many of the things I love in Al Young's work his brilliant ear, his wit, his humility inside of history, and always his awareness of just how cruel people can be to one another. In this case, that cruelty is illustrated by all of the brutalities that were held inside of the first American-built slave ship, piled high, groaning in fact, beneath the strains of expectations that some somebody in Boston named Desire. Here's Al Young reading the slave ship Desire. When I was doing uh, the research for this volume here called uh, African American Literature, which is a textbook, which first time I've done anything like that came out last year and seems to be doing quite well. Uh, I made a discovery. I don't know how this had eluded me before. Some of you out there probably already know this. But um, I found out that the first ship bringing in a commercial load of slaves in the Boston Harbor when the slave, that kicked off the American slave trade, North American slave trade in 1638, was named Desire. And I was, and I, you know, a poet runs across something like that and you say, well, I have to, I got to write something about that. And I was looking for an epigraph to frame it and I couldn't find one so I had to quote myself uh, from the... <laughs> The introduction uh, to that book, African American Literature, says, quote, as for the New England slave trade, which along with rum and opium turned the kind of get-rich-quick profits in its day that international drug trafficking does now, that industry would not be launched until 1638 when the first Africans arrived in Boston on the slave ship Desire. The slave ship Desire. Human cargoes, what we're talking here. A boat piled high, groaning, in fact, beneath the strain of expectation, factored in. On board, stuff hogged up space, turned soon to be. Straight ahead and bright, the salt-sweet taste of sweat and sacrifice. You 
couldn't spit it out. Like opium, gold, and rum. Like land enough to grow bigger eyes than food gone belly up. The money's there. Like sugar or tobacco, crack cash crops then as now. Like coal, September wheat, October cocoa, like unslit pork bellies, like Jesus crossed with sex and shoot 'em ups, like Anglo, Franco, Banco, American futures. Desire the boat, the streetcars still to come. Where human beings want, crossroads get jammed, get all tied up. Whoever blocks escape routes gets locked in too. No exit signs shine just fine in the dark, and anger glows. Picture a boat that crowds you, oversized, a load of woe. There is no way around a slave ship named Desire. feels a little funny to share one of my poems after talking about I and Lucille Clifton and Al Young, three incomparable poets from whom I've learned and borrowed so much. But I'd like to read one of my own poems that I hope is asking some of the same questions about our human capacities as they ask. Um, the poem is called Somebody Else Sold the World, and it's part of a cycle from uh, a book with that same title. Both the poem and the book reflect um, the anxiety and, and violence and preventable damage that happened during the pandemic, I should say, is still happening since we're still struggling with it. Um, the poem also reflects on the protests and the curfews we had here in Indianapolis after George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Jere Jean Reed, and so many other black women and men were murdered by the police. Somebody else sold the world. And before I knew it, the violet sky was flagged with the sun's violent demands for magnolias in bloom, natural light, any place magnanimous without locks or doors, different kinds of masks for being and breathing. The antagonists with their vanity tans and usual mischiefs whistled jingles about liberties and war while we buttoned up in our confinement and dreamed about hugging. We talked about was and when when we missed our friends and dentist appointments. Molders dropped out without breathable air. Hair forgot its natural colors without testimonies at intersections and barbecues. Words lost their family recipes. Friends lost their words, then lost their parents. A masked few found love somehow in the gerrymandered grocery lines and farmers' fields upturned with unsellable vegetables. So the antagonists cornered the curfews, manufacturing arguments with guns at the ready like henchmen. The air around us was so ripe, it might have broken in half if we could touch it. Adrian, thank you so much for choosing those poems and for giving us so many different vantage points on this hard topic. Listeners, thank you for being here with us. We hope you'll check out the show notes to explore the full recordings by these poets. They're absolutely phenomenal. Two weeks from now, we'll be back with a new episode hosted by Adam O. Davis. If you're enjoying the show, we hope you'll leave us a review or a rating or share us with a friend. Thanks again for joining us. 
Poetry Centered is a project of the University of Arizona Poetry Center, home to a world-class library collection of more than 80,000 items related to contemporary poetry in English and English translation. Located on the campus of the University of Arizona in Tucson, the Poetry Center Library and buildings are housed on the indigenous homelands of the Tohono O'odham people. Poetry Centered is the work of Diana Marie Delgado, that's me, and Julie Swarstad Johnson, with support from Sarah Jemski. Explore VOCA, the Poetry Center's audiovisual archive online at voca.arizona.edu.